everybody. This is Eric Krasno, and you are listening to the Plus One Podcast. This is episode 51. Yes, we've done 51 episodes. It's crazy. Can't believe it's been almost a year since we started the show. I want to just thank everybody that's been listening, sharing the show, sending me questions and guest suggestions. We've got so many great guests coming up. We've had so many great guests on the show. So I want to thank all of them, too. Once again, you can find me on Instagram at Kraz, K-R-A-Z plus one, or just at Eric Krasno. You can also email me at Kraz plus one, that's K-R-A-Z plus one at gmail.com. I also want to thank Osiris Media. They helped me put this show together and they have a lot of other great content that you can find at OsirisPod.com. So go over and check that out. So I've got an incredible guest on the show today, someone I've known for a really long time, a good friend, a great musician, a great producer, a great songwriter. His name is Luther Dickinson, and he founded the band North Mississippi All-Stars with his brother, Cody. He's also the son of the great producer, Jim Dickinson. He's a great producer himself and has also played guitar with the Black Crows, Phil Lesh and Friends, and was a founding member of the group The Word, which also featured John Medeski, Robert Randolph, and the North Mississippi All-Stars. The North Mississippi All-Stars have been nominated three times for Grammy Awards, uh, their most recent album, Up and Rolling, being one of those. So we talk a little bit about that, about making records, about producing records, about growing up in a musical household, about being in a band with your brother, and a lot of other great stuff. I'm really excited to get into this interview, but first we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. All right, he's an amazing guitarist, singer, songwriter, and producer, and a good friend. I'd like to welcome today's Plus One, Mr. Luther Dickinson. The first thing I wanted to ask you was like what it was like growing up in your house and, you know, your dad being this amazing musician and producer. Yeah, what what was the the music like? Was it just constant in your house? Yeah, his record collection is still... Uh, a wealth of knowledge. And at one point when I was a teenager, he pointed at it. He was like, you see that? That is a wealth of knowledge. You know, I, and even later in life, he didn't listen to music as much. He's like, I know it all. I, I've internalized all this music, you know. But when we were little kids, it was reel-to-reel tape machines, man. Wow. That was my favorite toy. <laughs> like, I was never, I've always been, you say I make a lot of music, man. Like, family and music is like, my whole bag, like, yeah, I don't have any hobbies or outside interests really. And, and, um, even as a small kid, man, those real to real tape machines are my favorite toys. Right. <laughs> wow. I would just sit and stare at them for hours. I mean, like really young, two, three, four. Right, right. I've got pictures of myself. I had a studio set up on top of my dad's uh, piano. And right. I had like a little stereo and a reel to reel and some papers and some tapes and you know yeah I was getting it on. <laughs> it's so crazy to think about. Like, were you aware? I mean, it's impossible for you to say really, but you know that you were around really amazing things going on. You know, I mean, because that you had like. Arl Burnside hanging out at your house, and you know your dad was making records with Big Star and the Stones and. I mean, were you, was that just kind of like everyday stuff to you as a kid? Yeah, it's funny. It is, it is everyday, but my dad was such a hero and a, and a, such a great friend to me and collaborator. Like I looked up to him and 
you know, working with him and uh, working just to impress him or, right. you know, it, totally. It was a great family scene. But, you know, one thing I noticed, like, I have friends that grew up in, like, more country or bluegrass backgrounds, and they all grew up playing together. But right. in our scene, my father and his friends, they played and the kids watched. And we would play and make our own noise. But it wasn't until we got to a certain level that they brought us in and we became like their rhythm section. You know, like we weren't allowed to hear you take the mandolin and, you know, they didn't let us. It was like, "Mm -mm." you know. Yeah. Wow. That's interesting. uh, I got to know R.L. Burnside in the 90s on my own. Those are my own explorations once we moved to Mississippi because we grew up in Tennessee. But. Uh, dad was, I mean, he was so for early, it was Alex Chilton was always on the reel to reels. Um, Ry Cooter, the Ry Cooter records, actually more the movie music that dad made with Ry Cooter. Right. He did, uh, the long riders, Southern comfort crossroads was huge. Yeah. 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 Ralph Macchio got the blues with that telecaster. Yeah, of course. Her dad worked on that. So we were in on that. We knew who Steve Vai was before anybody. I, I that that VHS was like, I mean, yes. that, and, and I spoke to, uh, you know, Cody connected me with John Fusco at one point because awesome. because uh, your brother Cody and I were doing uh, one of the Almond Revival gigs. I think we were in one of the vans, and somehow it came up, and I was like, man, that's like why I play guitar. It was the Crossroads <laughs> video. And my brother and I knew every word, you know, to that video. I remember we used to, we used to like, be like, so you, so you fancy yourself a blues man. You know, it's a Ralph Macchio. Oh, Joe Seneca was the guy who played the, yes. the cat. And he used to mess with Ralph Macchio. But anyway. Uh, so I've still got my Steve Vai guitar pick. And a nice. big one for me. At that point in time, I was listening to a lot of like SST Black Flag and, oh, yeah, and okay. just metal and just youthful. I was like 12, 13. The blues was like my dad and his friends. That was part of their music. It was around, but it, it was just around. I didn't, I played a little bit of it. That was a great thing. Open tuning guitar, finger picking, a slide was always just a part of playing guitar. It wasn't something I picked up later. It was just, that's part of guitar. But that's another story. But when the Crossroads movie came out, I remember leaving the theater in the car and being, yeah, you know, that blues music was pretty cool, man. Like, let me get some of those tapes, you know, <laughs> from my dad. I was like, I finally wanted, I had my own appetite to listen to that music on my own. You know, that movie turned me out. G Love too, man. He's a Crossroads kid. Oh, I got to talk to him about that. That's funny, man. Yeah, because during that time... I mean, I was listening to a lot of like Led Zeppelin and stuff, and and it was funny how like kids of of my era, you know, I mean, my dad was definitely uh, had a record collection, was into music, but my way to the blues was through like the British version, you know, like the white dude version, like the Led Zeppelin and the Stones, and that's when I started finding what came before totally that. The legit path. Right, right. But, you know, your dad, you know, obviously was in the mix and just had, you know, had that that collection. Would, would he kind of pick out records for you as and kind of guide you along or were you just kind of on your own? We would talk about music, and art and aesthetics, production. Yeah. That was a family dinner topic. Like we were always talking. But, uh, you know, it's funny growing up in a musical household. Like to me, my dad was the coolest cat but I learned quickly, 
like an elementary school and it, it maintained through high school. You can't really talk about it with your friends, you know, they don't understand it and it takes away its magic and mystique. Right. Right. When you, you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 Where, what were your friends in? Were you guys, you guys were into black flag and was that kind of like what was happening between <laughs> with you and your friends? No, I was at that point when I first got the six pack black flag single, I was like, oh, this is music. This isn't from my dad's record collection. This is my music. I love this. But my friends in school hated it, man. And they were so mad at me because I abandoned all the, the early hip hop and, and the classic rock that they were listening to. Because we right. had boom boxes, oh, yeah. you know, and at school and stuff. And, but when I started listening to Black Flag, I mean, I, you know, we would get into scuffles. But you had to- right, right. You had to defend your musical uh, path, you know, at a young age. Yeah, it's so interesting because I remember when I was when I was a kid, it was like Zeppelin was a big thing, but you either were like the rock dudes. It was like Guns N' Roses was like getting big at that time, or you were like in the hippie oh, crowd. Yeah. You know, I was like really into hip hop actually. That was like it was like Run DMC, the Beastie Boys, but that's kind. Of, it would change like every few months. I'd get into something different and and try to find a, a new like you know, which is why I never ended up really in any of the in any of the categories. But it helped having an older brother that was always like he was always Ooh. feeding me music. But uh, and my dad had records that I loved, but again, it was like the thing where you kind of want to have your own thing, even if your dad is someone who's like a music guy. It's like you always want to have your own thing. So when did you uh, when did you pick up guitar and start playing? I was really young. I don't remember a time when I didn't know I w- was going to be a guitar player. Like I've been really fortunate. Like a natural affinity for playing guitar wasn't. <laughs> I wasn't gifted with that, but at least I knew what I wanted to do. I had to practice. I still, I mean, I'm still learning, man, so much. You know, it's an endless journey. But just knowing what I wanted to do was such a gift, you know. And Cody, my brother, obviously, uh, he could play anything. He could do anything, computers, science, whatever. Uh, and uh, But we stuck together. And, and he started on guitar and was like instantly like way better than i was you know when he was like in kindergarten but uh he moved to drums when he was about 12 so we and we started been jamming together ever since and it's funny there was a creative process that was my gift like i i kind of drew and painted my way through school and there's a creative process that i can apply to like writing songs producing records putting bands together uh improvising you know it's it's all the same kind of creative process uh, that that is, was a, a gift to me that I've nurtured, you know? Right. Right. I can hear that in your records. Like I was just listening to up and rolling, by the way, congrats on the, the Grammy nomination on the new record. That's huge. Thank you, man. Um, three times. I'm rooting for a fantastic Negrito. Oh yeah. He's in that same category. I think G love is too. I realized. He is. Yeah, he is. I'm so happy for you. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a stacked category this year. But that record has such a mood to it, and I think that's something you're so good at. And and again, this might be a little bit hard to explain, but you kind of just did a little bit. But um, when you're putting a record together, whether you're producing your own records or for other people, are you kind of visualizing 
that, you know, that mood and trying to stay consistent throughout? Is that something that's like in your, in your head as you're, as you're creating things? I feel like each song has its own mood, you know, I don't, I don't really think about that. What we're always doing is we record like long, fast and loose and we know that we have enough raw material to edit together, you know? So that's what I'm usually trying to do is trim the fat. Like we'll have what might be a five minute song was like a 10 minute, a, a ver- you know, multiple 10 minute takes, you know, like we definitely use the digital uh, creativity. You know, like we're not record to tape type of band. You know what I mean? Everything I do, my dad used to say that uh, misery sticks to the tape, you know, and he taught us to, you know, protect the takes don't stop, you know, like some of the best stuff that I've got were the run through, not even the take, you know, that that's what I'm, I'm just trying to get an an inspired moment, fix whatever chaos might be around it to where like the actual moment of creation can be on, on, on the record. Does that make sense? Totally. Are you, are you often thinking about how to best, um, kind of usher in that moment you know what i mean um like what are some of the things that can because because i think that a lot of people ask what a producer does and i think that's Mm -hmm. something that's overlooked sometimes is that you have to create the situation whether it's where you are and who you're with and who's in the room and obviously who's playing what um are all factors in in getting that performance do you have do you think about that how how important is that to you? That's the whole gig, you know? I mean, every record and every song and project is different, but, you know, you it's fun, like, say, Samantha Fish or an a, a artist comes and you get to put a cast of characters together, you know, of cool musicians to bring things in and, like, singers. Or uh, Here's a great story. So when we did Sisters of the Strawberry Moon record, I... I made that record when I met the birds of Chicago. We, I met them in Chicago and we played a show and I was like, ah, oh, all right, we've got enough cast of characters to make an, another potluck record where everybody brings a couple of songs in. And Amy Helm and my friend Sharday Thomas, Other's granddaughter, we had already started a song and we were cutting it with just the three of us, drums, acoustic guitar, and Amy singing. And then I was like, Amy and the birds of Chicago don't know each other. They have to be friends and so we invited them down and they came in just as we were about to do the third take of this song and I, and we're like oh wow we're okay great amy you know allison uh jt um but we're gonna get this take real quick <laughs> and allison came down and sat at amy's feet and just looked up at her and we got this magical take of this song and amy sang her heart out and it was the moment they met you know and they've made so much music together since then, the, you know, it just changed all of our lives. But that's a nice, you know, a moment of a cast of characters coming together and creating a moment and capturing it, you know? Yeah, I think that that is part of it. Is like when you're producing, it's like you have to be organized, of course, and like in alert, but also able to shift and to know when the right <laughs> things, the right changes or the right like paths are opening up. You know what I mean? It's so fun. I, I feel like it's, I feel most alive, like in while producing a record, you know, it's like all your experiences and instincts and 
mistakes and experiments, they, they're all like right there, just at the touch of your fingertips in the moment, you know, and you got to, and you're just so alive and doing it with all the people. And it's really fun. <laughs> Funny story about my dad. We start grew up in the studio, but as soon as our first record came out, we've been on the road ever since. And that was a sad unbalance. You know, we lost so much recording time and on the road. But anyway, I had fully embraced it, man. I was living the dream. And at one point we were home making a record at, at our family studio and dad was behind the board. And I was like, yeah, man, I used to think I wanted to be like you and be a record producer, <laughs> but I don't. And he was like, yeah, son, you ain't got it. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> he was like, to be a record producer, you got to be able to make a split second decision and stick to it, even if you're wrong. Even if you're wrong. Wow. Wow. And he was like, you're too wishy-washy. And I was like, yeah, man, you're right. I ain't got that. But uh, I've, I'm not, I, yeah. we have different styles of production. Yeah, I think actually, I think there's a lot of different methods to it. I do agree with that statement to a certain degree, but I'm a guy that asks a lot of questions. I'm asking everybody questions. I'm, there's times where I'm like, don't want to hear anything. You know, but there's a lot of times where I'm asking a lot of questions. I Sometimes I think that's wrong. You know what I mean? But I mean, I guess it goes back to the thing we said before. It's like if the people in that in the room with you, you know, you if you're, if you're selecting these people based on making the best possible music, I want to be able to ask those people questions. You know what I mean? If like being able in the studio with the London Souls, I'm not going to sit there and not ask Chris what groove he thinks should be played, you know what I mean? Or Tash. Oh, definitely. Uh, how he wants to approach it. And, you know, this does go back to uh, um, talking to Don Was actually on the show. And he was like, man, the key to producing the greatest records is working with the greatest artists. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, obviously. But, you know, he has the ability. And Don's, Don's a really good example of like creating a vibe in the room and knowing how to create that with, with, but also like in kind of a, you know, he's also in a certain way is like a psychologist. He knows how to like put you in the right mood and know how to like yeah. not totally disrupt the session, but maybe remove this person or take this thing out of the mix mm -hmm. or whatever in a way that is, um, you know, again, it's, it's not abrupt. I never want to make huge abrupt moves that are going to completely change the energy. You know what I mean? Unless it's something everyone's excited about, you know? funny when you do you know so every you know, when you have your foot in your mouth on the tracking floor you're like oh sorry my bad yeah yeah i think my dad was just putting a fire under my i think he was challenging me you know yeah when he said that oh yeah but we we have a very different style a big thing to me is some musicians really do not like being told what to play right some musicians need direction i like direction in the studio as a guitar player please like you know feedback and everything is good but some musicians and a part of a lot of it is keeping musicians off of each other you know like don't tell each other what to play like you know what i mean don't i don't know it's a hard i i, I like for everyone to bring their organic instincts into the song and then you can shift it and shape it but i don't want the guitar player telling the bass player and drummer what to play like before you can start recording you know what i mean yeah. Yeah. Well, that is, you know, 
Some of that is the luxury of having time. You know, sometimes in the studio, especially working with bands, it can be really tough if you only have a few days and they've, they're really used to doing it a certain way. Like I've worked with bands and then we get in the studio and they want me on the project to help arrange what's what's going on and help kind of, you know, sort through the personalities of each other. These guys that are in the van all the time or the bus. And uh, but then when you jump in to do that, it's a whole different story because it's like, you know, you don't want to bruise egos and you don't want to. So sometimes I've used the method of like, you know, kind of convincing them that they came up with the idea that I want them to do, (laughs) (laughs) which can work. It works. It's amazing how well that can work. Almost the only way to get something across, you know, to be honest, be it in business or creatively, it's very, it, and even turning somebody onto a record. I think the thrill of discovery is so important. You know, like if you find that, that Led Zeppelin bootleg, you know, you're going to be more excited about it than if I turned you onto it. You know, I've been in a band with two brothers for, for many, many years. And you guys obviously started doing that as teenagers. Um, but how has that dynamic, um, you know, changed over the years? And do you guys, do you guys still have fun and get excited about, you know, making records and, yeah. and creating together? We really do, man. And, you know, we're 20 years into, you know, over 20, you know, to our professional album, you know, as recording artists, you know, We've been making money playing gigs our whole life, but t- 21 years since our first record came out, and it it we really feel better than ever, man. We just keep getting better at it, and you know, this year, this last year, we made the new All Stars record um, from our home studios, and it's you talk about capturing the moment, like we up and rolling. Our previous record had some really great moments with us and Carl, brother Carl. Um, on the tracking floor, playing new songs. And really, we really captured some inspired improv, improvisational moments, which means a lot to me if that's the type of record you're making. Yeah. But the new record that we've made, you know, I would, I would start with a click track and go as far as I could and then send it to Cody. And we just flip the wave files back and forth. Dude, it's amazing how, how inspired these performances are. Because it's not just getting a... Uh, chemistry, the chemistry of the moment together between all these people, like the drummer might be in the pocket while the guitar player is going sideways, you know, but when everyone's recording in their pajamas in their most inspired moments, man, this record is exciting. Wow. And I've got my whole palette. We, both of us, we have all of our instruments at our disposal. Yeah. You know, the tonal palette is so much broader than anything we've done since our first record. So yeah, yeah, we we we're really fortunate. We get along, and um, and sometimes we have very different aesthetic uh, waves that we're on. Sometimes uh, we're in sync, but part of what we do that we can't do without each other is that our basic tastes and styles are so different that you know, like he brings something to me and I bring something to him that we just can't do with anyone else. You know, right. so part of the cool thing is the contrast, you know, but man, he's such a tight player, man. It's like played with, uh, you know, so many extremes of rhythmic placement, you know, yeah. like Johnny V talks about the big bubble and, you know, you're moving inside the rhythm of the beat is moving inside the bubble, you know, yeah. or some cats are so metronomically masterful that they can just 
literally put it where they want it based on the attitude. Yeah. You know, just that's just one aspect of it. It's truly amazing to circle around back to something that we were talking about that I wanted to say was the key to making records or being in a band is surround yourself with the best possible people, people that are way better than you are. Oh, you know? yeah. Oh, so yeah. you got to claw your way up to the top. <laughs> I mean, I am so fortunate at Rome to be in bands with Lettuce, to be in Lettuce and the Soul Live guys just beat me to death every day, you know, for 20 years. Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, in the best possible way. I mean that in the best possible way. Uh, but, you know, in the very beginning, I had no idea what I was doing, you know? And, like, playing with a guy like Neil, with Neil and Al, and, like, you know, I just was faking it, you know what I mean? And trying to keep up. And Did you just say that because you had spent so much time playing bass and were and was new to the guitar at that point? Why do you, why do you, and what? I wasn't really new, to, I wasn't really new to the guitar. It was, yeah, well, it really was like do, playing like soul jazz. I mean, I did not consider myself jazz at all. You know, I was a rock guy. I was playing oh. like, you know, like a shitty Les Paul and a Strat. I bought my first hollow body on the way to the first soul live rehearsal, which became a session recording session. I bought like a $50 plywood crappy, um, hollow body. And so the first like while I was like, Oh man, I'm faking this so bad, you know, but I was like trying to listen to that t style of stuff. And, you know, part of what happened, what made it its own was that I'd let myself like be in it. You know what I mean? And it is a little, you know, I yeah. added my like dumb rock stuff to it all, you know? And, and again, I was like into blues, like Stevie Ray Vaughan and was my guy and Hendrix. And that's what I grew up on. So, um, it was, you know, guy. I, I could never have compared myself to people like John Schofield, who I ended up being, you know, playing with and in the room with. And but what happened was like by osmosis, like being around, like you said, like being around these great players rubbed off on me in different ways. And, you know, touring with Derek Trucks, who we've, you know, we've both like, you know, played with him enough that his amazingness has has rubbed off and i just you know i'm just so thankful it's it's funny how this past year too being in quarantine and talking to people and the appreciation for all of the the things that i've been around and the people i've been around has grown like i think it's always been there but you know it's it's it it just keeps growing i'll be working on music and i'll just have these random memories from the road of like walking down a neighborhood or a coffee shop or a record store or a sound check or a catering or and when you're living day to day on the road, hunter gatherer survival, it's not really, there's new input constantly, but I've never had so many memories in my life as this last year. And it's always when I'm doing music, I'll just have a vibe. I'm like, oh wow, today I'm in Colorado or Amsterdam or it's really bizarre. We'll be right back after this short break. to ask you that it's funny you say you're less Paul in your strat and then your hollow body because since I've in the last few years man I've really enjoyed listening to you play the SG and then the the strat style PRS yeah yeah man and it's just amazing how the instrument 
brings different things out of the player, you know? And I love that. Oh, I just, I, yeah. That. I've been so into that recently. And even to go back to your, like, being in your studio with your toys and stuff, I just made a record, mm-hmm. too, in that same exact way. And I was always like, kind of like, oh, we got to be in the room. Ban has to be in the room. Started working with this guy, Otis McDonald, who has his own studio in San Francisco. And, and, it, and we started working together. Initially, it was supposed to be one song for this compilation, and we ended up making a whole record. And that I, I was in my sweatpants playing around with these pedals and playing my SG and playing the Les Paul. You know, I have all these things, but like you said, like being on the road or being in another person's studio, you're generally going to have what they have or one guitar or whatever. And uh, there is a magic to that being in and also being able to listen back on like in a room you're, you know, and on your speakers and being able to take your time with it. Oh, you know what? I'm going to wait a sec and go make some tea and come back. And, you know, because if you're doing like eight takes in a row and it's not there, you got to (laughs) chill and go do something or try a different guitar. And that's, you know, that's something I rarely did before. You know, because I was always in something, some other studio or or somewhere else. So I've been feeling that too. And I do want things to go back to normal. And I do want to play in the room (laughs) with musicians again. But there is a silver lining to, to creating that way. Anders said a beautiful thing. He was like, we all know, you know, a lot of us are grateful for the time at home. But a lot of people have had terrible times in the last year. But Anders pointed out that, you know, the musicians, we internalize the human experience and and restate it to the community. You know, it's part of what uh, we do. And he said, there's a reason we all had to stay home, you know, um, so we could really feel this and and prepare ourselves for the next era, you know, and yeah. not prepare ourselves, but just be aware and, and let the music and art change, man. Dude, I was scared of having to make another record. I made a lot of records on the road, like on days off and it's fun and I like it and it's exciting, but man, I was not looking forward to having to do it again and to take the time. Oh man, it's been so much fun as a songwriter, as a producing, as a player, getting the inspired moments. And when you're in the studio, you know, you got to work, you know, 12 hours a day and you're trying to get what, three to five to six takes a day of songs, Yeah, you know, but you know, we've definitely been savoring the time. Yeah. On, and uh, only, you know, a beautiful thing that's new to me as well, like with uh, writing and producing on the, in the last years, I'll just be playing. Maybe I'll be straightening up my studio or whatever. And then I'll just hear a note or just a little snippet of a melody. I'm like, oh, there we go. I like hallucinate it. I'm like, ah. So you go to the synthesizer, you go to the piano. Usually I don't pick up, or the bass. Usually that's not a guitar thing for me. But, uh, and it's just so fun to wait, like true inspiration. Like you hear something, you're listening to the song and you hear something. And then that takes you down a new path and the song evolves, you know. I, I feel like that's always where the best stuff happens for me. You know, I mean, rather than sit in a studio and, and force yourself to write something, when something comes out of the air, when you're writing, do you most do you usually build the music and the rhythm first and then lyrics or is it you know, do you have do you have kind of like a preferred method or is it whatever hits? It's two different styles for me. Like I, I write a lot of instrument instrumental music that usually doesn't have an output, but is a the majority of what I do. And uh the songs that I end up singing 
uh, always start with the words. And there might be a, a melody or there might not. I just love words and I write songs, not poems. I'm just always writing. Not always, but I love to write. And I, I respect the craft and the habit of doing it, you know. And I, I love the part of the process where you got your notebooks and just every day you're just in those songs and you're just crafting away, just chipping away at them a little bit every day. And then I usually take the lyrics and then come up with the, find the key and then the melody and then just kind of shape it from there. So I'll get like a, a beat, you know, like a, a feel. Uh, I'll take the lyrics and I'll get a feel and a melody and just start kind of building it from there. So the harmonies and the changes and can all change down the way. But for me, if it's a songy song, it usually starts with the words, which is backwards. Yes. A lot of great writers I know, to like they'll have a riff and then they'll start just making sounds and then they'll figure out those sounds are turning into words and they may not even know what it means until years later, if ever. But I don't ever write like that. I'm kind of old fashioned when it comes to words. Yeah, it's so cool talking to people about that because I don't think any single person has ever had the same response, you know, to the question about, <laughs> about writing. But uh, I'm curious if there was particular writers that inspired you specifically, like uh, whether it's an artist you listened to or even an artist you worked with. Wow. As a songwriter? Yeah, as a writer. Oh, man, that's a great question. I love that question. My dad worked with The Replacements when I was 13 and 14, and I was totally fascinated with Paul Westerberg and Tommy Stinson and The Replacements. And I was really keeping up with the sessions that he would bring home cassettes, the rough mixes, and I had the demos, and I learned Paul's style. Because he was playing at open tunings, and he blew everybody's mind because like he's playing an open G in the key of F. And like my dad and all his crew were like, what? Nobody does that. Right. <laughs> and so they hired, they had me figure it out, you know. So anyway, Westerberg was a huge influence. Uh, Bob Dylan was a huge influence in the way that he just extends the the American folk vernacular, like the oral history of of Americana, you know, like be it blues or country or folk or gospel, you know, just bring them all in and make them his own and make it into something new, you know. And uh, I've always loved that about Dylan. Um, uh, and learning the the Robert Hunter Garcia material with Phil, um, I see how Hunter is like just such a master of that Americana uh, vernacular as well. You know, like be it Jack Kerouac or Robert Frost or yeah. Dylan or Hunter, you know, those guys, man. Wow. What a way with words, you know? That's an interesting and, um, one. I've talked to so many people about that. And I feel like the post like Jerry Garcia era of like all of like guys like us and the younger generation yeah. becoming a part of that scene playing with Phil has done so much for us. You know what I mean? Because it's not something that maybe all of us would have delved into if not been a, yeah. you know asked to either play with Phil or whatever it is. Um, but Robert Hunter specifically, but all of the songs uh, have influenced a whole other generation of writers, you know, because of that. Amazing. I, think. I didn't, I didn't grow up ahead. Right. Right. That was I was funny. That. Like I was talking about fighting about, you know, standing up for your, who the music you liked was your identity. Like I always, I loved fish, but I didn't listen to it. I loved the dead, but I didn't listen to it. I was like Allman Brothers and Jimi Hendrix, you right. know, my punk rock fans, like 
Leonard Skinner, but I didn't go there. But now I understand why the aggression of Leonard Skinner appealed to them. Right. But by that point, it was post-psychedelic era for me. Like, I was way past punk rock. You know, as soon as I started experimenting, you know, it was all Jimi Hendrix and the Allman Brothers, you know. so I was right there, but, uh, right there with you. <laughs> right there. Um, but with, when I did my first proper Phil and Friends gig in New York City, it dawned, it really hit home because they were not only, of course, people were singing. I mean, they were dancing and we were jamming, but they were singing along to every word. I was like, oh, shit, it's the fucking lyrics. Yeah. That's a huge part of it. It's the stories. Uh, the stories. Man, and so even great. though it's not the same characters throughout, it's the, it, and a few people that have been on the show, we've talked about this. It's like this town that exists or something that he created <laughs> yes. that Hunter and Barlow was able to do that too. But it, it always feels like you're in this, this town. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or this mood. Uh, and the musicians and the audience are all citizens you know yes, it's like yes it, it's, there's like the folk hero aspect of those characters but also you know um you know it's also been fascinating it's we talked about crossroads and our generation where we had you know i mean we we had M mtv from the beginning you know right radio uh so many great styles of music just coming at us and we just grew up and absorbed it all be it you know, early hip hop or, or punk rock or, uh, you know, our, our older people's psychedelic classic rock, whatever. It was all coming at us. But uh, I've always been inspired by watching our people, like how they internalized the same influences, like say uh, G-Love or Beck or John Spencer, you know, uh, 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 Dan Auerbach. Um, Jack White, you know, like all of all the people who love the same things that we love and to watch everybody stir it up and come up with a different uh, recipe. So fascinating. I wanted to ask you about some of your greatest teachers. Like what are some of the greatest lessons that your elders taught you that you remember that you always come back to, you know? Well, this one, you know, was huge for me. And looking back at it, it seems kind of obvious. But uh, I got to study with Youssef Latif in college, who I was a huge fan of before that. Um, and I got to meet him. And I ended up transferring to Hampshire College pretty much because he was there. And I got to know him really well. He was so generous with his time. But he saw that I was like even though I had never really produced anything, he saw that I was like into recording and into playing different instruments. And he did an improv class that happened every semester and I didn't have to take it or whatever, but I took it every semester and he started making me play different instruments like in the class. Mm. And he was like, all, always just saying like, you know, that it wasn't, yes, build on your technique, but find, you know, your voice, you know, find what really makes you, you and nurture that, you know? Um, and then when I'm working with other people, like I always kind of think back to that. It's like, you don't like, even though this person was successful doing that, you trying to do that is never going to be sincere, you know, and listeners always know, you know, don't underestimate oh, the listener, man. you know? So that was, well, that's one big that's, one. Um, but there's been, there's been quite a few. I mean, there's been so many that were nonverbal, 
You know, I think like just being, you know what I mean? Just being around people that can play. Like, for example, like I listen back to myself and I never say, it's not that I always say I played too much, but I never say I played too little. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I, I've learned from people like Derek, Sko, the greats from you, you know, like playing, you know, it's like sometimes I'll be like, try to do too much and you'll come in with the slide and hit one beautiful note. And I'll be like, oh, that's, that's all that needs to happen right there. It's so fun to have the elders teach and also to learn from your friends too, like yeah. your peers. Yeah. Cause I mean, growing up, I'm sure, man, dude, growing up with the lettuce guys, dude, what a high caliber musical talent, you know, talk about pulling yourself up. Say, so, ah, I can hang out too guys. Yeah. Not saying you, but anybody that was, dude, and I met them in what? high school. So it was huge for me because Amazing. at the time I didn't even know any musicians my age really. You know, and we all went wow. to this like Berkeley summer program thing when we were in mid high school. But yeah, I mean, I had no idea you could even do what Deitch was doing. And they also showed me so much music. Like I had just gotten into, like I was into James Brown and stuff like that, but I hadn't really heard Earth, Wind and Fire. And like, so each nice. one of us brought like a piece to the pyramid. You know what I mean? Like I brought more of like the rock, you know what I mean? And I had been listening to some yeah. fish and dead and stuff. So I was more like just really aware of that scene. You know, I was a fan mm -hmm. of the dead, but I was really into like Hendrix was my thing. Stevie Ray. Zoidus was like Tower of Power, horns, like da, 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 like this, the syncopated yes. horns. Deitch was like Earth, Wind and Fire, like beat, you know, with chord changes. And then we all were obsessed with Herbie Hank. We, it's funny, we all had just discovered Headhunters and we're like oh, obsessed because we were like, okay, this has like harmonic depth to it. You know what I mean? And these cool changes and these beautiful improvisational things happening, but the backbeat is so heavy, you know? So that was like, we, so funky. we just geeked out so hard, you know, we'd just stay up all night listening to stuff like that. And it makes you so much better because you learn from your friends, but also you want to keep up with your friends, you know, and turning each other on to music. It's fantastic. The beautiful thing. Yeah, I mean, now the, the shift the after that. We have to embrace younger musicians and yes. pass on, you know, because uh, it's crazy to think about, you know, that we're at that mid part, you know, like we still get to play with Mavis, Staples, and Phil Lesh and Buddy Guy, but we're at the age where our teachers were, that our teachers were when they taught us, you know. Sean Lane was a great guitar teacher for me. Right. And um, he was like the fastest of the fast. And he taught me a lot of stuff and we learned a lot of his music. He made a, a like a real fusion-y uh, one-man band record called Powers of Ten for Warner Brothers. And we, uh, Cody and our friend Paul Taylor that we grew up playing music with, great musician, uh, we had to learn Sean's music. And that was cool. And Cody and I eventually left because it wasn't quite our bag. We loved Sean, but we didn't want to put all our energy into playing that music. And then right after that, I became obsessed with Fred McDowell. And the skill that I had learned of actually like learning music at the degree, at the intricate degree that I had to with Sean Lane is how I was able to really get inside Fred McDowell's microtonal, microtonal slide work, which is like total. That reminds me of a funny night backstage at Colonel Bruce Hampton, a great teacher. Oh, the one best. One of the best teachers yeah. of our community. But he had Sean Lane right here and R.L. Burnside right here. And I was just sitting there like, this is the best. This is so out. 
and they were all they played on RL's uh, jumper on the line, which is just one one chord, one just E chord all night. Um, and we were joking around backstage about you know the diminished augmented. Yeah. You know, that's, that's one we always our favorite scale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and RL, we looked at RL, and he was like, "It's all E to me." <laughs> I love it's all that. E to me. Oh man, that's amazing. <laughs> and he he'd rock that E chord all night. So they were all sitting in, and O'Teal scooted over close to RL and was watching him. And they started the song, and Jimmy went to the four chord, and O'Teal was like, Mm-mm, "Not yet. <laughs> I don't know if we're going, but we're not going yet." You know? Right, right. Yo, Jimmy, I learned a great lesson from Jimmy. This is something else I wanted to ask you about was, you know, we've both been in situations where you have to learn a lot of songs real fast. Yep. And I like making arrangement charts, you know, and, and just jotting down melodic ideas. And I'll make, you know, the charts evolve, you know, it's like they'll get re- de- very detailed as I do different drafts. Um, but then they'll they'll become much more condensed, basically to, to just arrangement and maybe some melodic ideas. But uh Right when I was joining the Black Crows, I was hanging out at a Panic show, and Jimmy had just joined Panic, and he had this beautiful songbook on stage, and he had every he had it all, you know, charted out in his fashion, and um, <laughs> and I was like, that's how you do it. <laughs> yeah, that's how you learn a hundred songs in six weeks. Yeah, I have a crazy method. Uh, do tell. Oh uh, well. Tell. Well, you know, I, it's funny cause Deitch and I both, uh, I can't tell, like, I think I probably learned some of this from him, but you know, we both, we both have these weird ways of writing charts that, uh, you know, I do like my normal kind of like chord, I'll write down the chords, uh, and I'll Jeff, I mean, I always, I, I don't, I don't write down notation per se. Um, I actually yeah. will write certain syllables. Like if a, a riff is bad up, I'll, I'll like write B A D U P, like bad up, <laughs> and like I'll actually Love write that. like it's hilarious. Some people look at my stuff like like on the on the Phil gig, people look at my charts and be like, "What in the hell is that?" Like Schofield laughs at me because he'll write notation. He's a great you know, and I can read notation fine. I mean, I have to, I'm not fast, but I've had to write things so fast <laughs> over the years Then rather than like writing out a staff. Cause I just write on a, like a white piece of paper and I write the chord charts, but yeah. then if it's an odd bar, I'll write that, you know, I'll generally assume that it's not, you know, and then I'll write an odd, uh, odd bar or say that it's this. And then if it's a certain riff, I'll sometimes write the notes in, but you know, I definitely rely on my ear more so. And then I'll like write little notes that'll remind me that it's coming there or coming here. But yeah, but learning the grateful dead music has, was crazy, especially cause you, like you said, you got to learn like 60 songs in like two days and (laughs) you're probably going to know it worse than every single person in the whole venue, you know, cause they're all group. They all know every, nuance to these songs but uh and then now the with, with the ipad you know i and i hate to say it but i'm an ipad guy now because like J- jimmy to this yeah. day has that big notebook and, and like chris robinson is the same he has a big old notebook and i mean i've been with him playing central park where all of a sudden things start flying around and i'm like <laughs> i'm like looking, pointing at my ipad like i told you 
you know, but he makes fun of my iPad as, as, as a lot of people do. But, uh, Oh man, it's by any means necessary. You know, I love, I love it. You have shorthand. I do too. It's my own hieroglyphics, you know, and it's like, I might as well have learned, gotten up to speed with writing notation because I mean, I can get really intricate, you know, I'd be like syncopated 16th note stuff that I can write out and read, but it's my own bullshit. You know what I mean? Oh, Phil, Phil talk about it. Teacher. I mean, oh, here's yeah. the guy who will hire you, pay you extremely well, bring you into his home and then spend all day teaching you his own material. I mean, what with the, the generosity and, uh, of, of that mentorship is unbelievable. Unbelievable. Oh, it's Who insane. else would do that? Have the patience to bring you to your place, pay you well, and you don't know the material, you know? Yeah. And like, he's always the first one there. You know, he's there like hours before everyone else for rehearsals, for sound checks, and he'll spend all day. Like, I'm always so exhausted after a few days with Phil and like, I'm like half his, less than half his age. Um, but yeah, man, it's, he's just incredible. And also he could so easily have the same band and be fine, but he loves bringing different people in. You know, and I do Love. think some of that is like he likes that mentorship. I know he also gets excited hearing the music with different people and playing with different people. But I have to yeah. I have to think that he also likes passing some of that on. You know, I mean, obviously loves playing with, you know, his son and 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 Graham's just oh, like man. son's done such a like great job of like doing his own thing, but, you know, paying homage to the music and respecting the music, but also being appreciative of the scene and the whole thing. If you like improvisational rock and roll, you know, it's, you don't always go there and actually get in the zone and hit the note. But if that's what you're going for, playing with Phil, I mean, he takes you right there. Zoom. Oh, yeah. Like, here we go, you know. Oh, like, yeah. I invented, I, I cleared this path, you know. Yeah. This, we go this way, Sonny. <laughs> Was there any moments where uh, he threw a, a boatload of songs and you were like, you know, because sometimes he'll say, hey, sing this one, sing that one. And a lot of times I won't really, I mean, I actually learned to embrace the challenge, but in the beginning yeah. I was also just like, I was nervous. I didn't want to say no, but then there's like been moments yeah. where like, oh man, I got to sing that song. Like crap. Was there any, any moments like that for you? Oh man. Yeah. I cannot sing Garcia. He's such a true tenor and I'm just such down. Like, yes, me too. Just a baritone. I just cannot sing in that range. And um, there's been some terrible times at, at rehearsal, you know, when I would try because he asked me to, but thankfully like Jackie would have my back, you know, and we would trade a song like, but it was a funny, very funny thing that I fell into. Um, Pigpen's trip was so sim similar to my dad and his crew and the type of like blue eyed, psychedelic blue eyed soul that they would do, right, you know, right. my dad's band, Mudboy and the Neutrons, very, they were not influenced by the dead, but very similar. It was roots music of all sort played very loosely and improvisational, like taking uh, roots music as foundations for improvisation, you know, and they didn't really do any originals, our dad. And they were just, they just played, it was almost more of a, uh, art happening like it was an event when they played they would dress up in crazy costumes they had dancers and puppets and wow. magicians it was like it was like some acid test stuff of, of Memphis in later in the mid 70s so 
So they so much of the pig pen mm, repertoire and just that even the making up the crazy raps like my dad would do that his guitar player lee baker would do that so uh i would fall into the pig pen repertoire which has been really fun and thank god for it because i just can't sing uh the bob weir or the garcia stuff especially the garcia stuff it's way too high it's right where my voice falls apart you know I tried to sing Shake Down Street once. Oh, it's oh a, that's it not, lives like I, right there I, where my I, voice cracks. I've had that experience. I've had to do that song. And it's, you know what I've like <laughs> had to do, you know, which I, I, I think is probably blasphemous for Grateful Dead music, but I'd move the keys down if I have to sing yeah, the Garcia man. stuff. But, you know, I know people probably like, you know, like, oh, you can't do that. But if it's the only way. <laughs> It's the only way for me. You know, the last time we hung out um, extensively was at the Roots Rock Revival, which I also wanted to talk about that, uh, that whole experience, because that was so cool for me. And so sitting in on your classes were so amazing. And I just think you have such a knack for teaching Um and breaking things down and on so many levels, but you kind of opened my mind to some different tunings and I've been playing in different tunes. Nice. I like since then have been experimenting with different tunings because I was like having trouble singing in certain keys and certain tunings. And you're like, oh man, you tune this to C. You were in like a C tuning, I believe. And I was yeah, like, oh, yeah, I just I was- never even thought of doing that. Um, but, uh, well, f- I guess I have a two party question. One is like, how did you start experimenting with open tunings? And, and then like the next is I want to get into the roots rock revival stuff. <laughs> it goes all the way back to the beginning. I had a toy guitar when I was a little bitty kid, but then I got my first electric guitar for Christmas. And I think I was five going on six or six going on seven. There's this cool little baby strat mini strat. And, um, my dad was like, you learn three chords, I'll get you an amp. Well, after a couple of days of that, my mom was like, come on, just tune it open for him. <laughs> right. So he tuned it to an open E and showed me Bo Diddley. And so from there on out, you know, open tuning has always been part of the guitar. I knew that you could do standard and get the Mel Bay book and learn your chords or get the magazines. I found recently, I've been doing a film score and um, I write like I'll, I have so many guitars that are all tuned differently and I can write better melodies with my right hand than I can fretting. You know what I mean? Right. It's like right, I can make right. weird shapes and finger, you know, if I don't know what tuning I'm in, I'm just making shapes and finger picking. And it's so much more melodic and spacious than if I'm trying to just like, just play a melody, you know? Yeah. And for a, a tool for writing, it's so great because I feel like, you know, you can get in the box of like, this is diatonic to this and this is the scale that I play and this is like my go-to. And once you like, it's also like kind of when you try writing on a piano or whatever, but having different tunings, you can still play guitar and still have your facility, but it, you, uh, it opens up a whole other world of melodies and chords. The cool thing, I like say the Black Crows, like playing lead guitar with the Black Crows, it, you know, it's the chords that make it sound so, so unique, you know? It's like, 
you're really just playing blues or you know a simple jazz strategy over Rich's chords, which are out of this world. You know, like the shit Rich is playing is what is so unique. Because he's, he's got 10 different tunings that he's jumping from. Right, so he's yeah. all over the place. I know playing with him a couple times, Open G was, was yeah. one of them. But uh, he's, so he's all over the map. Yeah, inventing so many different tunings and just putting, you know, it's like the Beast Boys, only 24 hours in a day, only 12 notes that a man can play. You know, it's like yeah. when you're playing rock guitar, lead guitars only, you know, but having the context of what you play, you know, that's part of what makes them and the stones, you know, it's like yeah. it makes them unique. Those yeah. open tunings. Yeah. Tell me a little bit while we're on that. Tell me a little about, about playing with the black crows um, and like diving into that music. And, uh, and I'm curious also like how that, how that came together, that connection. Man. Uh, that was so fun. God, it was so fun, dude. That was like, for me, I grew up playing in a, duo or a trio that was a rock and roll orchestra man three guitars keyboards bass drums vocals pianos god it was so fun i loved it and we were just really doing some fun improvs i loved playing with gorman so much yeah he's really fun yeah uh rich and i became friends i was friends with chris uh we did a show and we became friends and chris would come and sit in with us whenever you know he showed up and and then, but I became friends with Rich and we did uh, some side project shows called Circle Sound in New York twice, two, maybe three times. And, um, and that was really fun. And we got along well and played well together. And then when um, Mark quit, their producer sat in, you know, filled the gaps. And then in 07, they asked me to uh, make the War Paint record. So we made a record and then we started touring in, in 08, made the record in 07. And then our last show I played with them was in 11. And man, it was fun. And they were total professional gentlemen the whole time, man. It was, it was really, really. And it was such a fun family yeah. vibe. Like the way they traveled was so great for my wife and I. And um, three of us all had babies that together. Right. Um, it was really fun. And fuck, they were writing some killer tunes. Yeah. It was a, it was a blast. We made the... Uh, Cabin Fever movie, Cabin Fever yeah. at uh, Levon's Barn. And that was a genius move because it was a three-week process of 20 new songs. And the first week we worked up 10 songs and then filmed them, recorded them and filmed them that weekend in front of an audience. And then we repeated the process with the second batch of 20 songs the next week. And then the third week, we just did all of them, just kind of, it was kind of, backup you know but man it was so genius of them to record new material in front of an audience in that levon's barn that environment um because man we really rose to the occasion and man there's some beautiful music on there i think and that's such an incredible spot there's just so much mojo in that room i i've definitely fell into the bag of using one i i fell in love with, the, with the, my sg and my 335 and I just had like this loud, clean. It was hard to find my place because it was so loud, motherfucker, man. Dense. The bass is so loud. <laughs> Rich is so loud. The monitors are, I mean, I've never been in. And I was like just trying to 
find my place to fit in. And I, I got a loud, clean Fuchs amp and uh, got the, you know, finally Derek and Jimmy got me off the pedals. I had a pedal board, but I was pretty much just plugging straight in. Yeah. And uh, I would, and then Jerry, you know, Chris turned me on to a lot of dead. It was a non-constant, uh, you know, uh, feast of Grateful Dead in the back lounge. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I just went real uh, clean and uh, I definitely wish that I'd experimented more with like, you know, Hendrix kind of wah-wah fuzz, Marshall, Stratocaster, you know, and that Mark Ford was crushing that in the, with his time with the Crows. But anyway, so I fell into that bag. Uh, you know, nobody's perfect, but yeah, that was a fun, fun time, man. But you know, when I left the band, that was a strange, strange experience of following my gut. Usually you hear it, you think, your gut instinct is just a whisper, you know, and like you might have a fleeting thought. And if you don't follow it, sometimes something will happen. You'll be like, damn it, I should have followed that. But man, I didn't, I just did not want to play that music when it came time to do so again. So I left the band and it was a hard thing to do uh, personally, but, but, and I didn't have any work. I didn't even know what I was going to do, but I just knew I did not want to do that again. And this is 13, I think, 2013. But that was the year Phil called me. So I got to learn all the great music and go down a whole new uh, journey with Phil. So it really worked and out. And it's kind of crazy that through the Black Crows, I would like that hanging with Chris in the back lounge was like a little bit of, little bit of training. <laughs> Big time. Yeah. Thank God. Like, oh, I've heard that before. You know? I think sometimes trusting that voice is really you know, everything because it allows for these other things to happen, you know, um, you know, it sounds cosmic to say, but, um, you know, the times where I've trusted my gut in those situations and those are the hardest decisions to say no to things that are seem so obviously great. Um, but a lot of times creatively, the best thing comes behind that. We'll be right back after this short break. I've become really aware of it and I'm really trying not to do it, but I'm, I've, I'm really bad about working my way up to the pinnacle peak of the improvisation and just blowing it. You know what I mean? It's like you build it all the way up and it's, and then you just fuck it up, you know, and you don't, you know, you either blow it or wreck it or you don't bring it back down or you, you know, it's just like, Oh, it's so hard, man. I'm really, really want to work on staying zen and focused and and like making my way out you know yeah it's easy to get in but you got to get out too you know getting out's the hardest part that's the that's the thing i was (laughs) that's the thing i was talking about earlier is like i listen back to myself and i think part of it is like it's hard to listen back to live performances because so much of it is the energy in the room and you can't translate that to the tape and stuff like that but i think sometimes i don't trust the power of the simplicity you know i don't trust the power like i don't i don't it's really just like trust the listener to like hear 
the the nuance, you know what I mean? It's like B.B. King would slay everyone with three notes, you know what I mean? And I'm by no means B.B. King, but I think uh, thinking in that way, you know, and being able to use simplicity, because sometimes you can build it up, build it up, build it up, build it up, and then the way to cap it off is something simple, the most simple thing you've done, you know what I mean? Um, right. I think there's so many ways to do it. And I think I've been around, like, I love Steve Kimmock is a, is actually, uh, he, he tends to really ease his way in. And in certain cases decides not to do anything. (laughs) You know what I mean? Uh Like if he's not feeling the groove, like I've watched him and I like to do this too. Like wait for the groove to settle when you're taking a solo and wait till you really have something inspiring to say, you know what I mean? Um, and I think there's power in that, but it's also like sometimes I'm too like self-conscious to like let silence happen for long enough in a show. Cause you like feel like, Oh, you gotta, you gotta keep people entertained. Um, so yeah, I think everyone's got a different way of doing it. I mean, Derek trucks, uh, we, we've talked about quite a bit. I mean, and, and you have the ability on, on slide and, and which all the different ways that you play, but I'm always envious of like great slide players like you, because you always have the ability to just sing that high note and hold it, you know, and go all the way up there. And I'm like, ah, oh, that's right where my like line runs out. You know what I mean? I'm like, Oh, oh. I wish I could go there. But if you, if you land it sharper flat, then, <laughs> then you just like, it's a foul ball. You know what I mean? Yeah. You can blow it quick. Oh, I, I got to play a great gig with uh, Alvin Ford Jr. and uh, Kirk Joseph down in New Orleans uh, a couple yes. of weeks ago. And there was this one moment where I was trying to work my way down and the slide just went haywire. I was like, I played like five or six notes all out of tune. Yeah. I was just like, oh, I suck. <laughs> yeah, but the thing, I think we we listen to ourselves in such a different way than anyone else. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because like you listen yeah. to like, a lot of blues records, man. John Lee Hooker's out of tune the entire time. Oh, yeah. But we don't care. The guitar is inherently out of tune. Yeah. And the guitar is such an imperfect science, you know. Man, Derek, uh, he's the king of, of waiting for the groove to settle, you know. It's uh, Sometimes you got to jump in hot. Sometimes if the groove is cooking. Yeah. I've learned, like post-Derek influence of letting the groove settle and work my way in, if the groove is really cooking, like Cody would get on to me. He was like, dude, why do we have to break it down right when it's like we've been building up to this, building up to this? Yeah, yeah, Let's yeah. just take it further. Yeah. But that's just putting the heat on me, meaning I got to come in hot and get hotter, you yeah. know? It's a funny thing. Oh, yeah. Derek, man, I've there have been many times when Derek would give me a solo and I would do my best. I'd work it up and work it down. And playing with that band is the top of the game, you know? It's like... Those drummers are so exciting to play with. And uh, uh, and I would work my way back down. I was like, all right, I'm done. And Derek would be like, no, 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 you didn't go far enough. And he would jump in and take it to another, you know, like take yeah. it even further. Like, no, no, yeah. no, we got to go further. Yeah. Uh, Robert Randolph will do that too. Oh, yeah. You know, he'll give you your solo and you'll do your best. And then he'll come in and just like, Oh yeah. Well, that was good, but we need this on top. (laughs) Well, that's why it's great to have guys like that around. You know, here you go. You know, it's like you you put up the shot and they can dunk it. Exactly. That's what it's like. (laughs) And like with Robert, it used to get on my nerve. You know, I'm like, damn it. Let me. uh, I'm. 
let me let me finish this melody, you know. But but then I realized like no, it's a, it, it is a team improv, you know what I mean? It's like because especially with the word, you know, it's a there's a lot of syncopation, a lot of the time, you know, and 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 it needs and Derek just brings the heat, man. He's yeah. just got the firepower. He's got flamethrower at his disposal, you know. Yeah, in fact, I want to ask you a little bit about the word too because that first record came out and it I mean I always have been a fan of Robert Randolph but hearing him in that band and just hearing that that con- combination of musicians was so cool um it kind of brought you guys all to a different place you know and I hear him and then Medeski being the mad scientist that he is how did that concept to come together man i'm sure you've had this experience but sometimes it will get a new record and it will literally change your life you know and the, it was a cd but that first sacred steel cd on on our huli changed my life man and we got it in like 97 and we toured with medusky martin wood in 98 and we were really into it and they were too so we would play together and we were you know i was playing slide guitar and we would talk about it and and we said, well, let's make an instrumental gospel record together. And uh, we had the session booked. And we got the Sacred Steel 2 CD. And Robert's track, Without God, was on there. And we were on the road. We were working our way to New York where we were going to do this, this recording with Medeski. And Chris Chu discovered him for us. Like He was like, you got to hear number five. <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> and we would listen to Robert's song, uh, his debut track of, you know, and uh, before every show, Without God. And man, just blew our mind. And then we realized we had a mutual friend, Roscoe, Eric Amble, Eric Amble, who had already recorded with Robert. And we asked Robert to open up our show in New York. And uh, it was Robert's first show out of the church. Yeah. And it was the family band, like, and some of the same musicians, Marcus was there. Yeah. And it was literally the first gig out of the church at the Bowery Ballroom. And Medeski was there. And we were standing there at Soundcheck just going, oh, my God, just goosebumps, you know. And, and so we invited Robert to the session. And, man, he showed us the way, man. Talk about a great teacher. I mean, it's such a whole tradition of, of wonderful music and grooves and melodies that uh, he and, and, and his community have, man. And it's been such a joy. Shemin's, man, he, uh, you know, his time with the family band, it was a real joy to me, man. Listen, Because he's such a beautiful rhythm player, lead player as well. But his, he's a, my favorite rhythm player out on the scene. And, too. and I know how cold-blooded Robert is he wants that driving rhythm guitar behind him and he'll sit backstage and play rhythm guitar all night. You know, he's got, he's so strong and his pocket is so hard. And man, Schmeens was bringing the heat. Oh, that I loved that era. It was funny because that was because, you know, I used to sit in with Robert and, and play, you know, when he did like Conan and like things like that, or and he played mm-hmm. whenever he pretty much he played in New York, I would come sit in. And it actually was rooted in I saw him open for Derek Trucks at the Bowery. And I think it was only a couple weeks after the gig you're talking about. And me and Derek, same thing, sound check. Wow. Me and Derek just were staring at him. I think Derek called me that day and he's like, You need to get down here and hear this this kid that's playing the show. <laughs> and uh, and I was we both just were like, What? 
in the hell is he doing with that? You know, I had never seen uh, the pedal steel played like that. You know what I mean? No. I had heard some records, um, but I, but I'd never seen that. So anyway, I used to play with Robert and he was like, I need like a guitar player to go on the road. Cause I was obviously, and I was like, man, you got to hear Schmeens. And I connected them together. And once I heard that, I was like, you know, cause Schmeens rhythm stuff is like you said, he's like a machine, but so much pocket, so much feel. And, uh, but then it was crazy because it did a lot for his playing too. Cause he started here learning all these other voicings and stuff and these whole other, this whole other bag. Um, so when he came and out of that, melodic sense. yeah, exactly, exactly. But you're right. That was such a great band at that time, man, with Danielle and, uh, Schmeens and Jason Crosby, you know, and then the, the later era of lettuce after that is like, yeah. you know, he just like brought all that to, 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 to that community. And uh, it's funny, man, thinking about your peers teaching and, you know, like Robert is a great teacher and. And Adam, it must be a great teacher. Cody's a hard teacher, you know, like your drummer. Like you'd be like, no, man, that doesn't feel right. That's not how it's supposed to be. You know, it's like, I remember one day Cody was like, if you can't like three, four, if you can't keep three over four, yeah. you ain't shit, man. If you just, if you can't do that, yeah. don't come to the party. You know, I was like, <laughs> it just changed my life, you know? And I remember practicing, like, I got to get this. I remember Robert looking back at me and was like, play, man. You're supposed to play. Yeah. I knew that rhythm. Yeah. And I was like trying to leave room for him so he'd be comfortable to play. Yeah. You know, let the groove settle down. But Robert was like, I need play, man. <laughs> you know, he, 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 we're going to break it down right now and I'm going to take us to the, to, you know, I'm going to take us to church. I'm going to, you know, preach a little, and then I'm going to bring it back up. You know, he, it's like, and it's nuanced. It's not just stop here and start here. It's like, we're going to the four chord. Yeah. I'm going to hang here for a minute. Come on, play with me a little bit. It gives you, you know, he just, it's yeah. so natural. You know, it's like him, George Porter. There's like certain people that yeah. they have this, un, this ability to lead a band without saying anything. You know, and Robert is one of the best. You know, and that. Robert is happiest when, you know, I, th I think Robert's really happiest when he's not playing the set list and he's like just creating music and creating a moment, a feeling in yeah. the room, you know? Oh, yeah. It's that, that, that's, that's the thing. And you bring up George. I couldn't have, what I learned from George Porter and Johnny Vodakovich at the Maple Leaf, hmm. you know, playing two sets with no set list, no tunes, just improvising, you know, I, when they took me to that school, you know, that that skill, that muscle that they helped me create has been so helpful in everything else, you know. Absolutely. It's a powerful, powerful thing. I was so, I used to get so nervous. I was just gonna say, I got so the first <laughs> time I'd ever did that gig, and I've done it, you know, countless times now, and I always look forward to yeah. it now. But uh years and years ago, I didn't know that was how they rolled. You know what I mean? But I yeah. never there wasn't any communication. So I kind of like learned some songs and wrote a list out, and they totally laughed at me. <laughs> they were like, What is this thing? I'm like, Oh, so we don't there's no okay. And <laughs> but once I gave into it, like you said, not only did I learn so much, but I had so much fun, you know, cause that's, yeah. that's when music is so pure and the joy is so, you know, there's no real expectation. Um, mm -mm. But yeah, they're so good at that. And you have to listen and be responsive, you know, 
and give the balance of, oh, well, I'll lead, I will lead here. Here, let's go this way. Yeah. Or, oh, no, wow, okay, we're going this way, you know. Or George would be like, be flat, you know. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. George would just call him out. Another thing I learned from George was you can sing anything on top of anything. <laughs> Speaking of teachers, I wanted to get to the Roots Rock Revival because I had such a cool experience there with you um, and uh, wanted to talk to you a little bit about that, what that's meant to you and just like teaching in general um, and also how that, how that came together. Um, Butch Trucks called me. He wanted to you know, talk about a, wanting to pass your craft on, man. Butch wanted to do a rock and roll camp and just share everything that he had and tell his side of the story. And it was a beautiful. And he, he literally said he was scrolling down a list on jam bass and he saw Cody and I, uh, just, I guess just a list of bands or whatever, but he was like, Oh, I could do it with those guys. And, uh, he called us up. We were like, yeah, Butch, whatever you want. So, uh, in the Full Moon Resort, man, they have it dialed in. They did uh, the Humphrey McGee's camps. They've done countless camps, the Medesky Martin Wood camp. Those were the two that, that I studied and tried to put a curriculum together, like looking at what they had done. Um, but yeah, we did it, I guess, seven years, and we had to take last year off, and we hope to do it. We were planning on doing it um, this coming August. And um, O'Teal, he joined the second year, and... Uh, you know, and now he's, you know, it's, it's his party, man. It's a beautiful thing because, uh, it started very Almond Brothers centric with Butch and, um, so many wonderful musicians have come over the years and the wonderful students of all ages are so inspiring. It's just, if you like playing music 24 seven, it's the place to be, especially improvisational because, it's like the maple leaf where you get into these jams with people you don't know. And sometimes you'll play a tune, but usually you'll just follow each other and, and just ensemble improvisation. But the classes are so fun. And, and it's become a legacy for Butch, you know, like after we lost Butch, that was really emotional, you know. And, and Valor Trucks, fantastic musician. You know, he's, he's leading the charge and O'Teal is leading the charge. And... With O'Teal's involvement in the in the Grateful Dead, um, the family's broadened so much, and the Graham Lesh and watching Valor Trucks and Graham Lesh, you know, come together, and they have so much shared knowledge and repertoire. It's just so sweet, man. I adore second musician, second generation musicians. Um, not to digress, but it roots rock, man. Yeah, and also the students are so inspirational, like jamming and playing and watching the students interact and and become friends and take care of each other and just watching the fire of youth you know brandon you know that's where i first met brandon and and now brandon's a full-on teacher like yeah. he i just said it the other day to to the the camp board i was like just because brandon's young i mean dude he's a he's a complete you know senior of the guitar and yeah. he you know he's a very Absolutely. I was, blown, I was blown away by a bunch of the students. I was, I, I, you know, I didn't know totally what to expect. I was excited to play with you and O'Teal and all of the, you know, teachers there. But then 
meeting the students and being around it, man. It was funny because I originally was like scheduled to do like one, two classes or something. I was at, I, I wanted to go to everything. I was like, what's next? Where are we going? What's, what's over here? Oh man. And it was so, <laughs> so fun, fun sitting in on the other classes. I just wanted to play constantly. You know, it's funny how like when we're, as we get older, sometimes, you know, the job and the music get mixed up and you get a little jaded. I mean, I, I find that I'm, generally always having fun when I'm playing music, but that, that really sparked a fire in me being there. And like you said, being around these kids and it just reminded me how much fun this is and that we get to do this, you know, um, and watching how excited the kids were made, you know, got me, I felt like I was a teenager again. So it was really such a cool experience. That uh, Dwayne Betts was there that year as well. Oh yeah, yeah. And he's fantastic. You know, I'm a huge fan of his playing. Me too. Me too. He's he he's I I called him slow burn after like the few days yes. that we played together because he has that ability to build real slow and tasteful. I recently got to play with him. We did a socially. It was a uh, almond family reunion at the Ryman. It was socially oh, yeah, distance yeah. and very yeah, small yeah. audience. Everyone was masked and it was so fun. But man, dude, Dwayne is like, he's going out there, man. He took me, I was standing on stage, but he took me through a journey. I had like goosebumps crawl up my leg and down my arm into my hand. Like he was doing this, this crazy bends that I just, I have no idea what he was doing. And he just kept taking it further and further. And of course he landed it. <laughs> right, right. But he, it was some next level stuff, man. Oh yeah, I, he's incredible. It's amazing how the second generation musicians, you know, uh, in a lot of ways, I feel like we're, we're late bloomers. Right. You know, I, I find that a lot, but um, I love, I love, uh, it's always an easy hang with the second generation musicians. It's fascinating to me. I've always been, you know, sl- you know, envious to a certain degree. You know, my, I had a lot of, I mean, I, it's almost, it, I had a lot of music in my house, but, you know, I got to meet, you know, Adam Deitch at an early age and being in his house where his parents were like always playing music and like recording in their basement all the time. And the joy that they shared with their music, it was, that was such uh, I was, my mind was blown the first time I like went to their house, you know, it was like mom on, on drums, dad on percussion, you know, the Deitch on piano, they switch it up, you know, like then they like cook dinner and like singing earth, wind and fire. And like, I, I remember leaving that house, be like, I don't, I don't want to leave. Can I just stay here? Um, <laughs> but you know, I'm also feel really fortunate. I mean, my family had just great art and me, my mom's a painter. My dad was a musician, uh, for oh. fun. My grandfather was a professional musician. Where did he play? But he played violin and piano. He ah. played like gypsy wow. music. Yeah, you can find some. He made records under the, the name Lou Krasno and the Gypsy Gems. Uh, oh, dude. Yeah, man. He was a badass. And he played with some great players. He was like in the vein of like Stefan Grappelli. He actually got to play with him and Lorindo Almeida was it. They had a group that they played together. And, um, he was very much into like passing on like that gypsy music. So he also wrote a lot of it down and recorded it. Cause a lot of that music was all passed from generation. Yeah. But it's also crazy when you hear, like I didn't get to hear him play a ton, but I've gotten to play with some of his, the people that played with him. And they always tell me that I sound like him, you know, or like certain inflections 
And uh, no, yeah, it's crazy, right? I love it. It's crazy. That's hot. I heard that there's a, a, a like a fake book of the Gypsy repertoire. Is that that could be true? I should, you know, he definitely was a part of that movement of like, like you know, of writing it down. And I need to do a little bit more research on what's out there. There's not a lot when you Google him, and like my dad definitely like gives me tidbits. I've actually found records of his on eBay that I've bought where he signed. It's actually, it's funny because he was like a real, like, you know, gypsy music guy. Like he wanted to like bring that music and represent that music. And one of the records that I got off eBay, I didn't know this. I just knew, I I think I knew he had signed it. I got it a while ago, but he opened the inside and he goes, not totally sure you're going to dig gypsy music or not, but we love it or something like that. I actually, I got to get the quote right. And then he signs it and he's like, you know, I don't know if this is your style of music or not, but this is gypsy music and this is what I do, you know, which That's I thought killer. was really funny. Um, but yeah, so and he, he actually was kind of cool because he also did like, you know, he was not a traditionalist, even though he loved the gypsy. Like he actually did covers of like the Beatles. He did like yesterday right. in the gypsy style oh. and did like popular music of like the late sixties, early seventies on some of that, those, his records, which I thought was kind of cool. Well, you know, they say Robert Johnson was doing popular music, you know, right. like everybody had to do, you know, that's, that's really fascinating, man. So he was improvising. Yeah. For sure. Totally. I mean, he had a class, he learned classically. The other thing that was interesting about him is that he was a doctor and in his fifties quit to be a musician and like became a full-time musician in his fifties. I mean, he always played and loved playing. Where? He was uh, in the Bay Area at that point. He was originally from Chicago, but moved uh, to the Bay Area. Yeah. So he was, and he got to play with a lot of people. Like he would improvise, like sit in with younger bands and stuff. But yeah, and my dad at that point was a radio DJ in the Bay Area. Um, like, you know, and he was, you know, going to parties where like Santana and some of the dead guys. It's funny because when I played <laughs> when I played with Phil, my dad hung with Phil and they t- they had mutual friends and like they were in kind of a similar scene. My dad was was called Captain Zigzag was his radio moniker. <laughs> Which I love to this day. But that is so awesome. But yeah, I think about it a lot. I mean, I have a six, about to, he's my, my son's about to be six months. I don't even know if I've, I've told you that, but yeah, we have a six month old congratulations, baby boy. And like, I have this little tiny guitar tuned open right now that I'm always just kind of like putting it near him. And he starts like clawing yeah. on it and he's fascinated by it. He loves the drums. Like when I play oh, drums that's... or there's anyone playing drums, he's just on it. Like just completely captivated i wanted to tell you my dad's open tuning story yes so he had a rock and roll band in the 50s in the mid 50s in memphis and he was younger than elvis and johnny cash like five years younger and he actually sang on the last sun records single so he was part of that scene he was just younger he was the tail end of it of memphis rock and roll but you know memphis in the 50s it was like hot rods and rock and roll it was he loved it and WDIA you know he was listening to all that hit music but his band they would play uh, whatever blues they could find and, and whatever rock and roll they did a lot of Bo Diddley and um, of course Bo Diddley plays in open tuning um, and uh, so Bo Diddley toured and my dad's band and they're in high school they're high school kids they got to open up for Bo Diddley and 
long story short, when Bo Diddley played, they were standing there watching his hands. And they'd never seen anybody play an open tuning before. And they're like, what is he doing? Like, he's not making chords. He's not even, he's just, and then when he does make a chord, it's like a full bar, you know? Like, yeah. what is he doing? It blew their minds. And they stayed up all night that night and figured it out, you know? And they discovered open E tuning for themselves that night after watching Bo Diddley. Uh, so... Wow. It's crazy how that secret knowledge is passed on through the generations. It's so fascinating how some of it, you know, because some of the blues guys, you know what I mean? Like I uh, would, were, were secretive about their secret, you know, or like, you know, precious about their secrets, yes. you know what I mean? Which is, yes. uh, it's interesting how they pass down, you know, whether it's you got to watch it and figure it out. And then in certain cases, you know, the chosen one gets to kind of enter the the lair and <laughs> and kind of, you know, uh, get to actually yes. hang with the cats. And, and, you know, I feel like sometimes those old teachers will like find the guys that they think are going to carry it on in the right way and 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 give them the, the jewel, you know, like the, the hidden gems. The, the, the baton. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and there's sometimes the wrong guys just, just work their way in, yeah. dig their way in through under the door. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think music is like any tradition or craft where you, of course, you can learn by yourself, you know, like tapes or records or books or now the internet, but videos and VHS, God, there's little snippets of gold that we grew up with. But it, it really is a wonderful thing to learn face to face, be it someone of your generation or, or older or younger, you know, it's a, it's a real human, uh, tradition, you know, and we do it together and it's wonderful to learn from other people, you know? Well, I love that, um, that you combine the family and music. I think that's so crucial because like some of my greatest memories growing up, and I'm sure you have many were like the living room jam sessions. And what really inspired me to want to play when I was a kid was being able to kind of being part of that and being part of that hang, you know, my dad would play and then eventually my brother started playing. And then the real shift for me was when my brother had a band and they were, that was the coolest thing ever. Like they'd be jamming in the basement and I'm all like five and a half years younger. So I was like wanting to hang and I'd pick up the instrument and sound like crap. And they'd be like, you got to go practice that. And then I'd go practice just enough to hang. And I think you're right. That, that community family, you know, um, that's what I hope to build. You know, I'm not going to force it on my kid or my eventual kids, but um, that that is such a beautiful thing, man. Well, man, this has been so cool to connect with you again. And like, for you, thank you so much for taking the time. And I hope that we get to oh, hang and play in person soon, man. You know, the last time we did see each other backstage, uh, we talked about making some music together. It really would be, I'm such a fan of your production and uh, it's such an inspiration. I mean, it's such a funny thing to want to do. And I know that you set out on that path, you know, a long time ago. You're like, I want to be a record producer, you know, and it's a beautiful endeavor, man. And I really respect that and, and admire, admire your work so much. And I look forward to making some music well, together. Man, the admiration is, is, uh, is mutual. Yeah. Thank you so much, brother. 
I want to thank Luther for being on the show. Such a great dude, such a great musician and a great hang. Before we go, I'm going to play the title track from the most recent North Mississippi All-Stars album. This one's called Up and Rolling.
Eric Krasno Plus One is hosted by me, Eric Krasno. Executive producers are RJB and Christina Collins. Audio production by Matt Dwyer. Produced by myself and Ben Baruch of 1111 Group. All original music is by me, and most of which are instrumentals from my album, Telescope, under the artist name Kraz. This podcast is presented by Osiris Media. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email Kraz plus one at Gmail. That's K-R-A-Z-P-L-U-S-O-N-E at gmail.com. Send me some questions. Maybe I'll answer them on air. Send me suggestions of other guests you'd like to hear on the show. Thanks again for tuning in. I'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.